Welcome to Babel of a Brews, deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I come to you tonight, Aaron Crew Juice Viverka, and I've got Gumby. Hey, hola. I've got Keith. Greetings from quarantine. <laughs> and I've got David Burnett. Hello. <laughs> so, David Burnett is, I'm sorry, I'm going to go over his, his CV real quick. David Burnett has completed doctoral coursework toward a PhD in religious studies in Judaism and Christianity and antiquity at Marquette University. He has served as a graduate teaching assistant and research assistant in the Department of Theology at Marquette. David is a two-time graduate of Criswell College in Dallas, Texas, with a BA in Biblical Studies and an MA in Theological and Biblical Studies. He has also studied at Tantur Ecumenical Institute of the University of Notre Dame in Jerusalem, Israel, and Oxford University. His work has been published with Fortress Academic slash Lexington Press and in the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters. We are so glad to have you on. Come on up for air, Aaron. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Glad to have you. And our uh, our brew of the night that we'll be having is going to be Southern Tears Double Milk Stout Two mm. X. All right, <laughs> Man, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it's a milk stout, also called cream or sweet stout. is a stout containing lactose, a sugar derived from milk, because lactose is unfermented by beer yeast. It adds sweetness and body to the finished beer. Milk stout have been claimed to be nutritious and were marketed as such in the early 1900s with claims that would make the FDA wince. One ad read, (laughs) my lord, ideal for nursing mothers, for the healthy, for the invalid, and for the worker. For the women. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Wow. I I couldn't get that out with a straight face. How is it, Gumby? It's excellent. I've had it before. I love it. Mm. Yeah. Mm, you know what? Good. That is nice. Yeah. It's 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 fairly well balanced, but mm-hmm. there is a punch on the end. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Since yeah, I'm not so. in the studio, can I point out my uh, beverage? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I want to point this out just because I think it's the official alcoholic beverage of 2020. <laughs> because it's the $8.49 for a six-pack alcoholic root beer that is incredibly mediocre from Aldi and it's called Big Brother. <laughs> Perfect. Actually, we should have all got a Big Brother I don't know tonight. if 2020 got better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out, I'm we're, actually we're under excited. surveillance. <laughs> I've been excited to have uh, David Bernano for a long time because I loved his paper on, on the Seed of Abraham. Mm. That was uh, I, I, I don't, are we allowed to talk about that one? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, because that was if you could go over that briefly, it was a really well written paper, and I I really enjoyed reading through it. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, I yeah, you're talking about my article with the Journal for Study of Paul and His Letters. Yeah, yes. the article is entitled uh, "So Shall Your Seed Be: Paul's Use of Genesis fifteen five in Romans four eighteen." in light of early Jewish deification traditions. And so the argument of that article, if I could, I guess, quickly summarize, <laughs> is, um, I mean, it is a complicated argument to, uh, for those who aren't familiar with the uh, Second Temple Judaism. But, um, but the argument of the paper, simply put, is that the way many early Jews in Paul's day and before Paul's day and after Paul's day um, read the promise to Abraham, the patriarchal promises of star-like seed from Genesis 15, um, sort of the, the covenant passage where he's taken out and he's told to look up at the heavens and number the stars if he can number them, so shall your seed be. Um, many early Jews interpreted that as um, a promise that is qualitative, not just quantitative, so it refers to becoming as the stars, not just their number. Um, so it obviously has the idea of multiplica- multiplication of Abraham's seed. They'll have many seed, you know, not just his own, but from many, many nations. Um, uh, but it also had the idea of qualitative in the sense they would become like them because 
in the ancient Near East and the ancient Mediterranean, um, dating back to times of ancient Israel all the way to times in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day. Um, the stars, the sun, moon, and stars are understood to be gods um, or angels, um, and so and so it was for Paul's own cosmology. And so when you go back to texts in the Second Temple period that Paul's writing in and read them, um, they're seeing a lot more going on than anyone after the Enlightenment is seeing. And after the Enlightenment, a lot of ancient Christian ways of reading and ancient Jewish ways of reading these texts are demythologized you know, or just sort of written off altogether. And so my work is there in that text, and spe specifically in Romans, is to show that all of the sort of central themes in Romans 4, if you understand those interpretations of the way many early Jews are reading it, all of them plug in perfectly. So the notion of resurrection from the dead, um, the notion of becoming the fathers of many nations, um, the notions of an eschatological vindication, all of these things he reads in, Paul reads into that one little promise from Genesis 15, so shall your seed be. And, and scholars have just sort of, you know, wrung their hands trying to figure out, okay, how in the world is Paul seeing all of that in that promise made to Abraham? And so my my work sort of demonstrates that, well, if if we would have understood ancient Israelite cosmology and how that's received into early Judaism by the time of Paul, we'll find that there's lots of Jewish authors that read it that way in the period. And there's lots of actually texts in the Hebrew Bible that um, are Old Testaments that that read it that way as well, but you have to, they're sort of coded in the sense that uh, modern readers won't really be able to see it unless you already have that cosmology that working for you, you know, mm -hmm. unless you already sort of understand the universe a particular way, because there's no universe for them. It's, it's, you know, it's a three tiered world. It's, you know, it's geocentric on a disc held up in some cosmic ocean with a dome, a firmament, literally. Um, over it, where you have, I mean, that's literally what the word <laughs> means, you know? Yeah. Um, and so they, the, the astral hosts are making their journeys around the, the disc, you know? So th they thought that they were the transcendent beings that ran everything below, you know? And in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament and in plenty of literature that didn't make it in the Bible, um, they, they, that's just sort of a common knowledge. That's just how they see the world. Um, now, sometimes in Hebrew scriptures, uh, those beings are demythologized a bit, but only in the sense that Israelites who go at, or Hebrews or Jews who go after them and worship them are condemned because it's against the covenant. You know, the covenant is is monolatrous, not monotheistic, and there's a distinction here. Uh, monolatrous meaning that they're commanded to only worship one God, you know. Uh, monolatry is the worship of one God, not many. So m monotheism, in the, the, the way we've received it in the modern West, um, after the Enlightenment, is uh, a little side note here. Monotheism was not a word in the English language until the 17th century by Neoplatonists at Cambridge who came up with this term. So it didn't exist before then. So um, concepts like of it existed, but the term didn't exist before that. But that's a side note, to just a background for where that terminology comes from. But um, before that, w many of us historians talk about sort of the religion of ancient Israel and then on into the Second Temple period where we have New Testament texts um, pinned. Um, the, those... The religion of ancient Israel uh, and sort of early Judaism, for the most part, is still henotheistic, meaning they believe in a high God that's creator and king of all the gods, but they still believe all the gods are actually real and exist. Mm. Now that screws with people's worldview. <laughs> <laughs> that, that really messes with people's sort of mental framework um, in many sort of religious traditions, in particular conservative ones that that have a really rigid view of inerrancy, meaning like 
everything, you know, word for word, every jot and tittle is exactly historically true and blah, blah, blah. Um, so if you have that kind of a view and you have pastors who just go get an MDiv who had some like communication degree or something before it. So they've only studied this stuff for like two or three years at a really introductory level. And then they're thrown in front of congregations of hundreds of people and like supposed to teach them. You know, it's like, it's sort of, it's kind of a scary proposition. Mm-hmm. You know, thing is how rabbis normally take like 12 or 13 years before they become a rabbi. You know, it's like, it's, it's scary. <laughs> right. But, you know, that, 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 uh, that happens a lot. But the, the common, so it's not common vernacular. In, in scholarship, like in historical scholarship on this ancient literature, we, like we've used these terms for years, you know. So it's, it's just, so, there's like a, there's a big gap between like the ivory tower and the sort of lay, lay community. So that's unfortunate. But so these ideas can only seem radical just because some people haven't heard them before. You know, so but but when we but when you are able to look at these texts that we have bound in some leather bound cover, that it's a library of literature over thousands of years. um, When you look at these texts in their historical context and see their sort of historical reception, how those texts have been received by ancient people in times, you know, subsequent to them. Um, luckily in a Bible, you have a really awesome ability to do this because all you really need is a Bible with, um, references in it. I mean, if you have a Bible that has scriptural references, like you're reading, say the gospel of Luke that I'm obsessed with or, or (laughs) gospel of Matthew or something. And, and you just go to all the references back to Hebrew scripture, back to your old Testament and read those passages in context. Like, don't read just the verse that it's referencing, but go back and read the context and then go back to those New Testament texts. Just doing that will blow you away. Like, just doing that will, because not many people actually do that if they ever read the Bible at all, you know. But if they do read their Bibles, um, which is a very Protestant thing to do, is just go read your Bible and pray. And that's like the sum total of their spiritual life. Um if if you actually go back and do that, you'll learn a lot, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Anyways, enough of my ranting right there. No, that was <laughs> great. That was great. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Because I I I I'm Catholic now, but I I come from the Protestant world, so you know I I, Me too. Most of- I was raised Southern Baptist. <laughs> there you go. I was raised more of the uh, more of the assemblies. Oh, okay. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was raised, and then um, Pentecostal type. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Which, to be honest, I was never never comfortable with. Though <laughs> it's like I was raised in it, but I was never comfortable with it. Which yeah. I mean, you weren't either, but yeah. No. <laughs> well, largely, uh, I mean, a lot of it's related and indirectly yeah. related to what he's saying. A lot of the theology never. It, it just wasn't coherent, like we were talking about with yeah. Iser. It's just when it's not coherent. Uh, I don't think our our values and even the way that we behave on an everyday basis will be that coherent. You know, certainly. How can it be coherent if a lot of this stuff is not even taught about? Yeah. You know, there's an important distinction here we need to make between coherent and right or coherent and true or coherent and just, you know, things coherent in the sense that we're not even talking about all the same information like we don't right right yeah yeah but, we but don't even what's, have what's interesting no i'm 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 affirming that that you're you're right and 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 i think that a really important distinction here needs to be drawn because when people are cert begin to sort of acknowledge that that like mm-hmm. wow this is a lot of incoherent stuff that can't be held together you know and they go searching yeah. for sort of theological answers you know um Sometimes uh, I, I was, I, I'm speaking from my own experience too here, is that early on, you know, I found that coherence I was looking for in the sort of neo-reform tradition in Calvinism. And, and I, I thought that that was like a, a bastion of thinking Christians. And, 
And while it is, I, I, I don't mean to, to bash it here that much. Um, I, I mean, I would, I mean, I, I would, I'd be, I feel fine bashing Calvinism, but, but, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I found there to be like, oh, there's a coherent system here. Like, like everything sort of plugs in and works and like it fits into like logical syllogisms and stuff, you know? So th just because something is coherent though, it doesn't mean it necessarily represents, say in this particular context, mm -hmm. what ancient authors may have meant when they, mm -hmm. when they say that. So yeah. it may work really well in the, you know, 15th, 16th century when you're fighting, uh, you know, a particular kind of Roman Catholic expression with indulgences and sort of overstepping political boundaries and things like that and different economic and political situations involved in Germany and Europe at the time, like those questions would have made a lot of sense. And, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the call for sort of a new way of looking at things or whatever was 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 necessary but i mean again i don't want to go into the reformation too much right now but <laughs> but all that to say is that was like sort of a long stupid way of saying um there are coherent systems that you can still disagree with and still oh, yeah. not find to be true and i i i mean i figure you knew but for anyone listening i don't want them to just automatically equate coherence with truth um <laughs> Because that, that's an all-too-quick, easy slip to make, you know? Because mm, uh, yeah. I could give you some really fancy, coherent ways of reading texts that are completely wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, that sounds know. like a good future episode. There's no, there's <laughs> two no truths and a lie or something? Two lies and a truth? Oh, yeah. <laughs> two truths and a lie. Well, with biblical interpretation, you could do like 700 million truths and a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as far as we know, there's no Scientologist listening right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't care about them anyways. <laughs> <laughs> They're not worth acknowledgement. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I hear they have a really good pyramid scheme. If you want to escalate really fast, <laughs> yeah. The problem is, I, I I'm sort of committed to these, you know, things called ethics. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you don't work in the government. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do not work in the government. And despite people trying to convince me to run for office, I'm like, that sounds like the worst possible idea. Um, but, but I'm 100% for it. And, and, you know, not for me personally, but right. I mean, you know, politics are very important because it affects everyone's lives. So, oh, yeah, sure. Um, you can't. I used to be very Anabaptist in my theology and very sort of, um, you know, if if you're preaching the kingdom of God and acting in ethics accordance with the kingdom of God, you are entirely separate from politics, not involved with politics, and sort of only speaking to it prophetically from the outside and not involved in it. And I don't think that way anymore um, because I don't think it's sustainable. Um, I, I think it we're we're sort of, we're born into these situations where, these political systems exist and they have enormous power and control over people's livelihoods and, and futures and freedoms. And so for us to neglect them and ignore them and not participate in them or not be willing to participate in them is a disservice to everyone, to our neighbors. I mean, it's a disservice to people around us. It's just, it's a disservice to people that are not like us. It's a disservice to people who, get trampled over by the system, yeah. you know? So, you know, I, I, I'm all for kingdom ethics and a kingdom worldview and all of that. But if, if, if you're ignoring what the political uh, gears and cogs and system is doing to real people on the ground, then there's a problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. No, I agree. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, just yeah, it, I'll it, drink my hydrogen and oxygen to that since I don't have any beer right now. <laughs> it takes me back to a to a. Um, I used to when I was in college, I was with a, a a Pentecostal campus group, and I was signing up the speakers to come speak up. You know, speak at our weekly you know services or whatever. And I remember 
I didn't even understand at the time, but there was all of a sudden this big controversy. Should we have anybody to speak about social justice? And it was like this big, like, you got to wow. stay the heck away from that. <laughs> and yeah. it just, it's wow. so outrageous to just think about the general term. It's like, how could we as Christians not be in, invested, even if we disagreed wholeheartedly about what justice, you know, in a social sense meant that we could disagree, that we could say we, would, we shouldn't even talk about that. Seems right. it's more and more insane the further I get from it. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's completely ludicrous. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the this sort of rhetoric that comes generally from the far right uh, versions of Christianity in America um, that sort of hate that term social justice or use SJW or social justice warrior as some sort of derogatory term um, like that's what you leftists do um, is is incredibly ignorant um, because yeah. the, the entire first of all these people aren't reading their Bibles first of all I mean the, the, it's it's just plain on the face obvious that the whole reason we have a prophetic corpus at all between, you know, bound in these scripture scriptures that we say we love and read all the time um, is because ju of justice issues that existed in Israel at the time that are being addressed by radical prophets. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, prophets that are like walking around the city naked saying, hey, God's condemning you for all your injustices. You know, it's like. Prophets who are calling politicians like whitewashed tombs. You know, there was a guy that was crucified by Rome that did that. You know, that guy. <laughs> um, that, that, you know, so it, it's really important that American Christianity wake the heck up and realize their prophetic tradition that created their faith. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 guy, the, the guy that Jesus calls... The greatest man born of women. Literally, Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest man ever born of women and says, you know, even the least of the kingdom will even be greater than him, which is kind of mind boggling. But, right. <laughs> um, but I think he's talking about himself there, but then also sort of the corporate identity of the church later, but in Christ. But, but um, the fact that he said that about John the Baptist I mean, better than David, better than Moses, you know, who gave the Torah, you know, better than you, you name them, you know, <laughs> better than the high priests, better than the prophets of old. And this is the guy who sees the corruption of the economic system, the political system, the social system, the religious, the, the temple establishment, separates himself from all of it, who goes out into the desert, you know, making his own clothes, eating locusts and crap. And then yelling at the politicians from the desert saying, you know, hey, <laughs> you you politicians in there, you, you know, you who are breaking the law and sleeping with your brother's wife and taking advantage of the people and blah, blah, blah. He's calling them out by name, naming their sins by name, you know, and yep. huge movements of people are following them, you know. Yeah. And so and, and doing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which that Greek word metanoia that we translate as repent in the first century was a political word. It, it's something that you use when someone is demanding allegiance of a different political leader, you know, or a different uh, sort of imperial association or something. So the first century Jewish historian Josephus um, records in his uh, account of the Jewish war in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, um, and in his actual books called The Jewish War, recounts um, when he himself, he was a turncoat, he sided with the Romans, he was a Galilean general, and then sides with the Romans in the Roman Revolt in 70 CE. Um, he actually calls for the peop the last sort of rebels and zealots that uh, stationed themselves up on Masada um, as the Romans have just like sacked Jerusalem and, you know, they're heading out to the desert and trying to get rid of these last vestiges of these rebels. And they're building a ramp up Masada to get to them, to kill them. And Josephus is with them and telling his Jewish brothers to repent. <laughs> says metanoia, repent. Yeah. <laughs> because surrender to Rome, you know, maybe <laughs> they'll spare you, you know, yeah. because this is, that's, that's how the word is used. Um, 
And it's Latin equivalent. This is really interesting too. On the Roman side, the Latin equivalent of the use of that term that's used in the Vulgate, the Latin translations of the scriptures um, that the earliest Latin church used. Um, the same term is used by um, uh, a figure called Pliny the Younger, who was um, the, the sort of regional um, uh, prefect of Pontius, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Galatia, places we have letters written to in the New Testament, you know. Um, he's, he's the, he's the, he was the procurator of that territory um, uh, about probably around late, late early 2nd century. So we're talking maybe like 50 years removed from the New Testament texts, okay? And he's, he's writing back to Emperor Trajan at the time, talking about Christians, and what he says about them is fascinating. He says that he does it, he's asking how to treat them because they're seen as rebels. So he doesn't, he, he, he's, he's very violent in the way he treats them. He says, if they don't repent, that, um, that uh, he would kill them. So <laughs> he would bring, like literally, he would kill them. And he asks the Emperor Trajan, um, should I show sort of mercy if they're younger, you know, or older, you know, should I, you know, differentiate my judgment based on their age, you know, like, should I, and we still have these letters, which is remarkable, um, <laughs> uh, from the second century. And, and, um, he, at, he says that, you know, they believe in this superstition, you know, they, they sing songs to their Christ antiphonally as if he were a God. They make commitments not to, um, uh, steal money from each other. You know, not to steal, not to, um, you know, <laughs> like, like banks do in America, you know, yeah, so, yeah. Um, and, and, and how Christians love to charge each other interest, even though Jesus says net to give money without any expectation of return, which is like above and beyond Torah, because Torah says, just don't charge your brother interest, you know, <laughs> but Jesus is like, no, don't ask for a penny back. So basically, <laughs> if we obey Jesus, it's impossible to be an American capitalist. It's like, but, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it's physically impossible. You can't obey Jesus and, and, you know, our whole system's built on credit. You know, it's like, anyways, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm going way off topic here. But all that to say that those letters preserve this memory that, that um, repentance has always had that political um, notion to it. And, 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 and Pliny the Younger would actually bring in, you know, a bust of the emperor and in, in like the, the images of the gods um, to test them, to see, to see, you know, would Christians blaspheme their Christ? And, and so if they paid uh, obeisance to the gods, you know, they honored the gods, they, then they either blaspheme Jesus, they're safe, we don't have to worry about them, you know. But if they're like, um, you know, heck no. I'm not going to blaspheme Jesus. Like he's the God of all gods. He's the King of Kings, you know, uh, that he would just kill him. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the world in which this faith came out of. Yeah. So when we, when we're looking at these texts, they're radically subversive texts politically. And, and they're, they're not to be sort of, um, castrated and, and muted by, milquetoast politicians who try to persuade and um, mollycoddle and with like empty rhetoric, substanceless garbage to try to persuade them to, you know, keep me in power, keep me in power, thinking that literally tear gassing and shooting with rubber bullets, peaceful protesters, what... And 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 priests and seminarians who are taking care of them, just so you can get a photo op with you holding a Bible up in the air. Yep. Thinking that will actually placate American Christians to continue to support you. Yep. Yeah, is yeah, the yeah. most anti-Christian, insane. I, I mean, just absolutely monstrous image. <laughs> of, of the American church, but that's where we're at. Yeah. So, but that's where we're at. Yeah. I, I agree with you. That's totally where we're at. Yeah. No, I agree too. 
The funny thing is, is that I do think to some extent for a large majority of evangelical Christians, it does work. It's sad. And it's sad. Because he knew it's, exactly it's politically what to appeal to yeah. for, you know, for this next election term coming up. It's so my question is to you, then, you know, we've had this talk on the podcast yeah. before. Are we, are, are we a Christian nation? No. Okay. We never were. That's such an absurd reality. This notion of we're a Christian nation is absolutely absurd. I mean, we've, we've been accused of that and say, hey, well, the reason why our nation's this way is because we're following, you know, we're a Christian nation. A good, it, there, there's a lot of books I would recommend that just easily debunk that myth. Mm -hmm. um, a good starter book for people, if they actually care, um, is by uh, Gregory Boyd, A Myth of a Christian Nation. Um, mm -hmm. the, the Myth of a Christian Nation. Um, that's a good that's a good one for Christians. That's written by a pastor and scholar. I mean, okay. PhD from Princeton. Um, br brilliant scholar. Um, some conservatives don't like him because he's an open theist, but I don't. I don't care about that. Like, um, yeah. I, because the top the the subject matter. Forget all that if you're going to read the book. If you actually, uh, because the book right. says exactly what American conservative Christians need to hear. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's one of many resources I would sort of point people to. Uh, another one that's I think. Probably the most important American theologian, um, maybe that we've had um, in Christian history in America, is Stanley Hauerwas. Um, oh yeah. Other than John, everyone would say Jonathan Edwards, you know, for in like the Reformed tradition. But I think, contemporarily speaking, at least um, the most important, one of the most important, one of the most important American theologians is Stanley Hauerwas, um, who is retired uh, ethics professor from Duke, Christian ethics professor from Duke, um, who has a great book called, it's, it's more heady than Greg Boyd's book is. So it's like a level up a little bit. But, um, but the book is called um, War and the American Difference. Uh, okay. War and the American Difference. Um, and that's a collection of essays by Harawas on this problem of an American identity being somehow conflated with a Christian identity. And yeah. it's trying to work it. It's, it sort of uh, works through this notion of the, the American civil religion that has sort of co-opted Christianity to, uh, well, some branches of Christianity in America, a large part, like large, huge voting blocks, you know, and yeah. sort of, in tries to untangle what Christian identity looks like apart yeah. from the reality of this Christian civil cult we have in America that sort of tries to wrap those two together. But that's, I mean, that's, this is coming out of the nation's uh, creation in many ways because uh, the, the, the Christian sort of rhetoric and scriptures are used in the expansion of the nation in, in movements like Manifest Destiny, you know, the notion that, uh, oh, well, God has told us that we must expand from sea to shining sea, and we still sing about this, right? Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and give pledges to this, you know, um, that, th that and, and the, the, the story they use to undergird, like sort of the narrative propaganda they use to undergird that, to like, kill a bunch of natives, run them off their land, and take all the territory, was the story of the conquest in Scripture. Yes. They're like, <laughs> we're, we're like the new Israel, and God has told us to conquer these Canaanites in the Americas, <laughs> and, and, and our exodus is like crossing the sea, you know, from England to, to the U.S., and we've made our exodus, and now it's our time for conquest. That's literally, I'm not joking around, like, that's... Yeah literally the narratives they use to undergird their ideal ideology of conquest it makes and sense so, yeah right so when, when when you have a nation born out of that rhetoric and that and mm. and how you sort of take scriptural tradition and christian stories because most of these people are all christians of some sort uh um trying to escape political oppression and stuff that they're re retooling them to justify conquest in their own period. And uh, that's the American story. 
and, uh, and you know, and we're the Egyptian slavers too with African Americans. You know, America is the Egyptian slavers. You know, that that have ta- that steal black uh, black Africans and bring them over here for our own economic gain. You know, and that built the whole agrarian uh, economic economic center of the South and and North too. The North hands are uh, very dirty in that too. So um, most of our economic prosperity and wealth in that regard was built on the back of slavery. And so the, to to think that you know Jim Crow laws in the future. Um, uh, mass incarceration, uh, you know, the economic oppression of being trapped in ghettos, um, lack of opportunity, lack of education, lack of health care, um, the works. To think that systemic racism isn't a, isn't a problem in this country and to just blame, oh, the riots, the riots, the riots, and to, and to miss the entire point of this moment in our, in our history, in this movement, is blind. Yeah. It is blind and it is ignorant. And yeah. it is it is it is intentionally silencing the voices of oppressed black and brown people that are our neighbors and our brothers and sisters, and and we refuse to listen to them. And white politicians and white conservative Christians who refuse to preach on this stuff because, like, well, I just preach the Bible as if the Bible doesn't have anything to say about systemic injustice, as right. if the Bible doesn't have anything to say about economic injustice. As if the Bible doesn't have anything to say about liberating those who are poor. What is the whole gospel built on in the New Testament? The proclamation from Isaiah that Jesus reads in the synagogue says, hey, you want to know what my entire ministry is about? And he reads it right out of Isaiah. It says, the spirit has anointed me to announce the good news to the poor, to liberate the poor. He reads it to them. He doesn't, there's no ambiguity there, you know, like he doesn't shut up about money in Luke and Acts. <laughs> so to, th- to, to think that we don't have the resources just in our Christian scriptures, that we don't have the resources to be able to tackle these kinds of problems is just pure ignorance. It's just, it's, it's intentional ignorance. I agree. It only further undergirds the reality that systemic racism is a thing because we can do this all day long and ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. When, this, when all, of the, all of the wealth of prophetic critique that we need to address this is already there in your texts that you keep waving around as if you have anything to do with what they're actually saying. You know, so, the, okay, there's, there's my rant. I, I, uh, <laughs> very good, very good. Well, so that, that actually had me thinking about um, kind of putting together, you know, some of your thoughts earlier about, you know, even, even pastors not having much of an education in the Bible and kind of being, you know, limited to a few years in, in divinity school and then getting into that whole cycle of, I'm going to do a 40-minute sermon and it's going to be applying this Bible verse to your life, whatever your situations are, and we're going to rinse and repeat. I, I, I realized in my head, thinking back to the, the incident with the president posing with the Bible, mm. that I was so focused on, I mean, not that I shouldn't be focused on the gassing and the rubber bullets and, and driving away the protesters and just so he could do that, but mm. I had forgotten about the potential impact of holding the Bible. Like, to me, it just looked almost mm. like a sideshow. It just looked stupid. He's going like this. But I yeah. realized that th- maybe there was actually symbolism in there that really, that, that, a lot of, you know, Christians, you know, conservative Christians in our country, like really resonated that like, he's really doing something important in the Bible. Like almost like it's a, it's a physical manifestation, uh, a visual of absorbing the Bible, the osmosis that a lot of us might do each week in church. Is that, is there something to that? Or is it just, they're cheering him yeah. on because, well, he's already given them judges and, and whatever. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> I mean, right. for, well, um, this is a con- this you I mean you're 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 on point here in your thinking I think um, but the, it's a really complicated multifaceted issue because it has to do with perspectives right so like the the so the Trump administration and he himself is thinking that um, and he said this right in the address right before doing this that oh I'm gonna go to a sacred place you know 
and, and, and whatever, you know. And then, then <laughs> tear gasses the people and goes over there, but in holding this Bible in front of a church, um, because the, the messaging he thinks is, I'm standing for the scripture. I'm standing for the church. See the church behind me? I'm the one standing up for you against all these invading hordes, you know, like I'm the one that's standing firm and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's all sort of a, a political sideshow, you know, oh, yeah. because he knows that those images, just flashing them and holding them will somehow galvanize, you know, his already, his base that already exists, that will continue to sort of hold them there. Like, see, I'm still standing for the Bible, blah, blah, blah. No one is convinced by that who isn't already for him. So it has more to do with the maintenance of his base mm -hmm. than it does anything else. Um, and so, yeah, the, the sort of political messaging that's going on there is is really obvious to anyone who who does this kind of thing, you know, who studies rhetoric and political analysis and everything. It's very, very obvious and childish and stupid. Um, but, but, but the thing that many Christians who already say they follow him and support him aren't seeing and me and me and some uh doctoral colleagues and 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 fellow uh biblical studies geeks uh have like been on text threads and messaging each other like laughing about this is all the same evangelicals who love the like you know uh left behind type crap you know the the like, oh, we're watching for the Antichrist. He's there. He's there. You know, he's going to be, you know, look at Israel. Look at what's happening in Israel. Look at what's happening, you know, and always trying to, like, map the end times, you know, like those types of people who just eat that stuff up, you know, like, like, like just, oh, my gosh, it's so ridiculous. But it's still popular. Like people still <laughs> in evangelicals and think this way. They're missing all of these wonderful hermeneutical opportunities with Trump. Like, how is Trump? holding up the scripture after tear gassing and rubber bulletsing citizens um, and running off priests and seminarians, not like antichrist images, you know, <laughs> like all the same images that they want to use for Obama because he's black and liberal, you know, is like uh, they could use for Trump easily. But so yeah. it, re it reveals something much more sort of deep about the political fissures and problems within American Christianity. Um, the reason why they don't interpret all of these sort of Trumpian insane events standing before the statue of the Pope and like pay, paying honor to it. No one tries to write like left behind type stuff about that because they are committed to a particular kind of American political ideology first mm. and their Christianity comes second. Yeah, so for sure. whatever they believe about their Christian faith is filtered through and must meet those specific American political parameters. And if it does not, well, then it's of the devil. It's not Christian, blah, blah, blah. You know, does that make sense? Oh, it makes complete, it makes complete sense. Does that and I, make sense? You know, it, it, it's funny, you know, for, you know, for me, I, I would make fun of it or whatever, but it, it stops being funny when you see a person like Mike Pence who firmly believes in dispensationalism. Who mm. firmly believes in those prophetic end time prophecies? When mm. you have a vice president of the United States who influences foreign policy, yeah, and I'm specifically talking about foreign policy and how we affect other nations yep. around the world, yeah, that gets a little scary. It's it's the the fact that it's not scary to some Christians. The fact that some Christians are so brainwashed mm -hmm. that they actually love and support him is. Is it's mind-boggling to me. Oh, I mean, no, I, 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 and I know, I know, I came from that tradition. Like, I grew up in that tradition. I mm -hmm. get, I get it. But it takes, and this is this is the hardest part. And this is one of the, one of the reasons we're at where we're at right now in this country. Is the one of the hardest things for people to do um, hermeneutically. In other words, like how we interpret everything. One of the hardest things for us to do is to leave our echo chambers. You know, it's very, very difficult to leave your echo chamber because it's a safe space. You know, the same people who love to rail on the liberals, 
who talk about safe spaces and stuff are the same people clinching to theirs. Because in, in my ideological bubble, in my echo chamber, where everyone agrees with me, you know, I have like three or four policy things that I have to have. And I have this particular narrative of the United States of America that I have to have. I have this particular kind and brand of evangelical Christianity that I have to have. And all my friends will be those people. And I will talk to those people. And all my constructions of other people's identities will come from that echo chamber. Will be filtered through that. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you tracking with you tracking with yeah. me there? Is yeah. That my understanding of other people's identities and their beliefs are constructed by mm -hmm. this echo chamber that is not in touch with them. Mm -hmm. And so they, they'll, they'll take the same words, the same things they say, the same images and all that, but it will be filtered through that hermeneutical system. And so it's not real dialogue. Yeah, There are yeah, lots yeah. of people who will you know, put on the hat like, look, I'm really into political dialogue, but they're not. They, they want to filter everything through a particular lens. And so, the thing is, the, right, the Christian right is not the only ones doing this. I mean, the radical left does this as well, but, but it's particularly heinous and dark in American evangelicalism. Yeah, because it's, we're talking about 30 to 50 million people. That's right. Who are convinced. There's so many of them that are still convinced that by supporting these particular people, that they're being Christian by doing so. Yeah, And if that's the scariest part. The scariest part is that they're so deceived that they actually are, believe in their own hearts and minds that if they don't support these particular people who wave Bibles in their faces while sexually assaulting females and, um, and you know, misusing funds and not giving a rip about the poor and screwing them over, you know, yeah. th th if they don't support those kinds of people that, oh, no, the bad, evil secularists are going to get us, you know, yeah, yeah. they're going to get us. They're going to take control of the country and blah, 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 you know. And it's like, I think of now think with me historically for a moment. Think how that narrative squares with the narrative of the birth of Christianity. I mean, think, th think how opposite that is with the birth of Christianity, you know? Yeah. Were, was, were Christians really, did they really give a rip if Rome was against Christ? I mean, did they care what the, po the politicians would do to them if they found out that they were uniquely Christian or whatever, you know, did they try to like convince Roman senators to just legislate for them? You know, like they, they weren't, they didn't care about that. They cared about preaching another Lord other than Caesar and their allegiance was to him. And they believed that even by their, not only their um, uh, jeering, um, and hatred, you know, which wasn't really widespread initially in Rome. I mean, that was really blown out of proportion. There wasn't this like massive Christian prosecution, uh, persecution. That's a myth. Um, there was some, there wasn't a massive movement. And th th there was only some when it became uh, political, you know, inconvenience or, or sort of a threat. Um, but the notion that, that Christians somehow um, oh, we need we need our pagan governments to legislate for us, and we need to rule them with our own worldview and our own narrative and our own ethics, or we lose. It's just absurd. It's what U.S. politicians use to co-opt evangelicals and use their votes. They hold all those things like abortion as political carrots. They're just carrots. They're yeah, like, like, we're pro-life. We're pro-life, and they don't you do nailed. anything for pro-life movement. That's the biggest one. You just nailed it. What's that? Of course it is. That's the carrot. That's capital T H E. I, I would say in terms of Trump, I'd say that's one of them. I mean, I know. I would say it's the biggest one. I, I, I know so many evangelicals, my mother included, um, which I won't mention her name online, but, <laughs> who voted for Trump for no other reason 
And it, it's another white elephant that needs to be brought up. But he was voted because of his undying and unwavering support, supposedly, for the state of Israel, which is directly yes, okay. tied in. My my mom. You're right. That's another big one. How how she perceived how he supported Israel was a huge, if not the defining factor for why she supported Trump. And I'm like, what? Mm. It was so bad. I, I remember walking in our home once, her home. And as soon as I walk in the door, there's a state of Israel flag that hits me in the face. Okay, so I, I just kind of chuckled at it. I'm like, Mom, yeah. I'm like, what is this? I'm like, no American flag, no Puerto Rican flag. She's from Puerto Rico. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, Trump is there, and you know, if you don't bless the Jews, all this rhetoric comes out. That rhetoric is so deeply indoctrinated yeah. at yeah. evangelicals that yep. it, it doesn't matter what Trump does. He could literally throw babies in fires. They will vote for him. Yeah. Well, I mean, he said it. But did he not? I mean, he said that. He said in the campaign, I, publicly, like in a speech, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any voters. He did say he it. He said that. He did. On the political campaign trail. You just go to YouTube. But no you know? light bulb goes off. I don't get it. No light bulb goes because he knows he knows like any demagogue knows how mm. to placate the masses by rhetoric. Mm. And, you know, some of us who are in education and academia we, um, in the humanities are incredibly frustrated and have been for some time about sort of the dearth in the humanities in America where many universities are taking money from humanities departments and all giving it to STEM. And all giving it to science and technology and math and because that's where all the big engineering money is and everything. And so a lot of people in their bachelor's degrees can go through their entire get an entire bachelor's degree, never study rhetoric, never study political philosophy, mm -hmm. you know, never study the rhetorical political history and how the rhetoric works. I mean, if you learn the five canons of rhetoric from Aristotle, you know, or you read Cicero's rhetoric or something like that, and you, people thousands of years ago knew how this rhetoric works. I mean, they've mapped it out way better than most contemporary authors. So, and okay. all the contemporary uh, rhetoricians use them. They're like the Bible for rhetoric, you know? So um, if, if we were trained in how to think rhetorically and how mm -hmm. to, how rhetorical speeches work, and how they're supposed to appeal to pathos and ethos and eros and all these things, we, we would know. We, it, would be like, it would be like Sesame Street. It would be so easy to see through the BS, you know? It would be so simple. Um, and, and, and mind you, when uh, early classical um, education in America was actually very good. I mean, they, they did. I mean, grammar school students, like middle school age students, were learning Greek and Latin. You know, and, and, and reading, eventually getting to the point where they could read Aristotle in Greek, you know, so and read Cicero in Latin. And, and you know, they could see that the, the day of the rhetoricians has died, my friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was good Greek, too. That's good. Good Attica classic Greek. <laughs> I've realized you might have partially answered my the question that was on my mind for the past few minutes, which was how do we engage this? this toxic system. I mean, as, as Christians were called to, I'm sorry, I got a kid who's like trying to rip all the clothes out. That sounded really bad. A little three-year-old is trying to get undressed because, you know, three-year-olds like to change their clothes seven times a day. <laughs> <laughs> but how do we engage, you know, like, I'm just thinking, like, I know there's a breaking point for a lot of people. I mean, I, I was in this boat three years, you know, three or four years ago, I was actually a really staunch conservative. I like to joke with people when they ask me that Trump made me socialist. Um, but it was also, you know, a combination of hitting a limit being like, this is a bridge too far versus, yeah. uh, you know, some right voices at the right time. Like what is like the practical way, you know, the large group of us can engage that actually maybe slowly, maybe piecemeal starts to turn the tide. Man. Uh, that is a hard question, my friend. Um, that, I mean, that, that's the $1 million question right there, isn't it? You know, like that's, that's sort of where we're, I think all of us are asking, you know, um, and the problem with sort of, 
the, the problem, the reason why that question is so difficult to answer is, and it doesn't have like one singular answer, I don't think, um, is, is because these types of movements on a rapid scale, like a volcano waiting to blow up, has blown up and we're all rushing to catch up with it, you know? And unless you've done an enormous amount of study in advance for years preparing for something like this, you're not going to be able to think on your feet really well, you know? <laughs> you're not going to have much to offer in the moment when it goes down, you know? It's like, yeah. it's, it's kind of, and we're seeing that now with a lot of Christian leaders, is they, they're not sort of read up on African-American history in the U.S. They're not, they, they don't know their history really well. Like, they don't, they don't understand why does the murder of one individual black citizen cause, like, literally all 50 states to be erupting in protests right now. There are some people that just have that disconnect, you know, they just can't fathom in their mind for whatever reason, either they perceive everyone to be liberals who's doing it, or they perceive like, oh, we don't see any systemic uh, racism. You know, I got a black friend and I got my, the black friend card. Oh my God. I don't, <laughs> don't even get so me started. That was where I was kind of going but, with that. Maybe you were kind of yeah. answering it a little bit before was that, you know, if we could have gone back and had educated ourselves a lot better over the last 50 or hundred years, we might be in a lot better position, which Unfortunately, it's difficult for any of us individually to do at the grassroots level <laughs> in a moment. Hey, hey, listen, I, but, but, but don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying I have the answers, you know, like I, I'm trying to figure this out the best I can with, I may have more education in certain areas than other people, but I, my PhD is not in American political history. You know, yeah, my yeah. PhD is not in um, racial uh, divides in American history or something like I'm what here's here's one thing I can say concretely that we all have to do and I'm mainly addressing um, non-black and brown people right now but this is one thing we all have to do um, <laughs> it's okay it's okay I said mainly um, is listen to shut up that's the first part shut up and the second part is listen to black and brown scholars of history and politics and the black the the black um, struggle in the United States. Listen to them. Listen to their voices. You know, listen to what they have said, what they are saying, and get out of the way and let them steer the ship on this one. You know. There are too many white politicians and white Christian leaders who just love the mic right now. Man, they are eating it up. And I just want to tell them, and myself included, to shut up and get out of the way and let our black and brown brothers and sisters lead the way on this one. And don't, and in so doing, in saying that, I know I have to, I have to sort of give this caveat, unfortunately, is in saying that, what I am not saying is go and bug all your black and brown friends and say, oh, teach me, what can I do, black and brown friends? <laughs> you know, please take all of your time and energy right now and pour it into me, oh, poor white person that just wants to help. Like, no, <laughs> that's not how we do it. Oh. That, that's not what we do right now. Speaking from a minority perspective, uh, yes. we don't want that. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Another, See, I, another like, I can't say this stuff. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, no, it's, it's okay. I, I actually, I, my wife and I were talking. My wife is white. Okay. Uh, we were talking about being profiled. I've been profiled many times in Rocky River, uh, Lakewood. Oh my gosh, Lakewood is. It can be pretty bad sometimes. I bet. Just, I bet. just for not having the right type of car. Uh, so I, I truly understand that perspective. But let me offer this perspective. Yeah, please. To my white brothers and sisters, right? Please. And uh, I realize that I may be the minority within the minority when I say this. It's okay. Uh, there's always another perspective, even on the extreme end, right? Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a mostly all Spanish 
Puerto Rican, Mexican, you name it, and black neighborhood, right? My church was all Spanish. My family is all Spanish. Uh, I, I just have to say for what it is, the most discriminate people that I have known because of where I grew up were not white people. Join us for the rest of the conversation in part two.